You're listening to Finding Fearless, an exploration of human-centric leadership and a celebration of ambition. Join me, Madeline Reeves, as I dig deep to learn from the lived experiences of underestimated entrepreneurs, innovators, creators, and fearless founders. Each episode, we explore the ideas behind their decisions to become business builders, to understand how they turn their passion and purpose into work that will change the world. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Finding Fearless podcast. I have a really fun episode for you today. It's a little bit meta in the sense that I am sitting down with Emma Tesler of 95 Media. And 95 Media actually is who helps us produce the show as of this season. And it has been a really fun partnership to bring to life because I met Emma over a year and a half ago through a retreat that we attended together. And we just instantly clicked at that moment because she and I were two of maybe about a handful of us who owned creative businesses that were at that event. And I could just see her strategic thinking was very similar to mine. And so uh, we hit it off there. We've continued to collaborate over the years. She's a referral partner of mine, as well as many other things. But I really wanted to to come on and have this conversation with Emma because she is incredibly ambitious. She's somebody who started building her brand while she was still in college and has grown it significantly since she went full-time in 2020. And so this is a really powerful conversation talking about what does it take to make that big leap into entrepreneurship? What are the skills that we need to develop as leaders to be able to not only hire people, but fire people and make these hard decisions that we have to as we grow a company. And also we talk a lot about what does it take to really build a services-based businesses and how do we hold those boundaries while also recognizing that there's all these other things we have to do, like network and build partnerships and be delivering great services. So it's a really in-depth conversation. I think there's a lot of great advice as well as practical knowledge for um, folks, particularly if you're growing a service-based business. So I won't give anything more away, but here's my conversation with Emma Tesler of 95 Media. Welcome back to Finding Fearless. This week, we have Emma Tesler of 95 Media to chat about navigating the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and what it takes to build a thriving virtual team. Emma is the founder and CEO of 95 Media, a digital marketing agency that builds results-driven marketing strategies for scaling brands. She helps brands connect with ideal clients, build community, and convert audience members into paying customers. After her first exposure to the world of digital marketing in 2015, Emma identified that social media platforms were the future of marketing and the key to scaling a business in today's world. This inspired her to launch 95 Media, and hence, she's since doubled in growth year over year. Today, Emma and her team have worked with over 100 clients in 25 different industries, helping them monetize their online presence and see incredible results. With eight years of marketing experience under her belt, she is on a mission to disrupt the digital marketing space for the years to come. I'm so excited to chat with her today. Welcome, Emma, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You are one of these people that I I felt like when I met you, we made this instant connection, not just because we are both gluten-free, but because we both are in this crazy evolving world of online marketing. And we met at a retreat for entrepreneurs and There were every single type of business model in that room, but I immediately could see you're young, you're ambitious, you're creatively inclined. And so I just, I felt this common ground with you and it was really nice. I remember there were kind of these moments where us and a couple of the other folks who own similar businesses, you know, came off to one side and were like, we really need to talk shop. And so I'd love to do some of that today, but I'd love to to know more about your earlier story because I don't know that yet. So could you talk to us about your upbringing and your background before you started the company. And then I'd love to get into what really led you to launching 95 Media. Yes. So that retreat we met at, it's so funny. Like when I met you, I was like, this is someone I need to know. (laughs) You were just like so far beyond where a lot of the people were there. And it was so awesome to just connect with you in that environment and stay connected a year and a half later. It's very full circle. So I really appreciate you having me on. So yeah, my background, I never really thought I'd land in marketing. It was never the plan. I didn't know anything about marketing. And I actually, in high school, I was just kind of like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I I didn't feel like 
I watched people around me who were very clear on what their future held. And I remember feeling jealous of those people and being feeling like you just have it all figured out. That must be so nice. And luckily, I ended up taking a course where we I was introduced to the world of interior design in high school. It's funny. I'm thinking back. I used to feel those jealous feelings in freshman year as if I was supposed to know <laughs> anything at like 14 years old. You're right. Right. But, you know, that's where my brain is always. And so I ended up taking that course on interior design in junior year. And I just committed. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I started taking pre-college classes. I was like super dedicated to this space. And so I ended up going to college for interior design. And I went to the Fashion Institute of Technology in Manhattan. And I was obsessed with it. It was incredible. I absolutely loved it. I'm a very creative person. But while I was in school, I realized I'm actually very analytical as well. And as we all know, in the world of digital marketing, you really have to be both. And you have to know when to turn on creative brain and when to turn on your analytical brain. And I feel like I was just really lucky in knowing when and how to switch between those two. And so while I was in school, I interned for a designer. I think it was after my freshman year or sophomore year. And again, it's things change so quickly. And I'm a manifesting generator. And when you know you want to do something, you're just like, this is it. So mid going to school for the thing I thought I'd be doing forever, I was realizing, well, maybe this isn't what I want to do forever. And at this internship, she was expanding her business and it was 2015. And she handed me the phone as the youngest person on the team and said, can you just figure this out for me? Can you just figure out Instagram? Because I really, I've heard this is a thing where we can start bringing in new clients, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And it was totally new to me. I was still, as we, most of us were in 2015, posting sunset photos with the Nashville filter on Instagram. And the idea of business on that platform was crazy to me. Mm -hmm. But as I started to dive in and really take a look around, I was almost mind blown that more companies weren't doing this because they really weren't. In 2015, the idea of marketing on social media was laughable. And I got laughed at a lot when I would pitch people in the early days because it just seemed like that wasn't a real, quote unquote, real avenue of business. Mm -hmm. But I, I fell in love with it and I just thought this was so cool. And so I continued working with her. I took on some other clients while I was still in college. I would literally just go up to people and cold pitch them and be like, your Instagram kind of sucks and I can make it better and let's do it. And that's how I signed my first couple of clients. And so when I graduated, I was I was bringing in, you know, a decent amount of money on the side. And I landed my dream job in design before I even graduated college. And I felt like I really need to do this. Like I need to pursue mm -hmm. design. I just went to school for four years. I really need to see if this is what I really enjoy. And I was a couple years in and every year on my anniversary of working there, I was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to start it. I'm going to go all in. And I just, you know, that fear builds in all of us. And we, most of us have felt that if you've built the side hustle while working corporate. But then the pandemic hit and mm -hmm. it changed everything. And the in world of interior design kind of came crashing down because there was no inventory and there were a lot of layoffs. And then so I struggled on that side of my work life. And then on the digital marketing side, you know, a lot of clients dropped. They didn't have budget in the beginning. You're like March through May was really hard for basically everyone. But then come summer, it started blowing up because every business realized, well, crap, I have to do this. Like this is my only option to bring a new business. And so we really started growing in 2020. And by the end of the year, I had left corporate and just committed full time to doing this. And it's really been incredible ever since. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, you answered one of the questions, but I, I want to dig a little deeper here because you mentioned this, this fear. And like one of the questions that our audience asks constantly is when should I like, as if we're going to have this moment where we like, you know, right? We're like, this is the perfect time to, to leave my job and start my own thing. 
And so you talked about the push of the pandemic, but when did you feel ready? When did you, or maybe you didn't, I don't know, like, you know, but, but I think it's key to be honest about the experience of what it takes to be brave, to make that leap into starting something of your own micro agency. I don't think I was ready at all. There was no point where I just said, this is it. Like, I feel totally confident in everything I've done up until this point. I just kind of said to myself one day, I think it was in the summer of 2020, I my anniversary date at that job was in September. So the summer always made me kind of think, you know, mm. what am I doing with my life? What's going on? And I sat down that summer and I just knew that if I didn't take the leap when it felt like the world around us was crashing down, I never would. Mm. And it was there was something about the fragility of that year and just kind of the reality that there were a lot of people not making it through that year that just kind of pushed me to get my ducks in a row to where I felt confident in leaving. So the biggest thing for me, because I am a planner, I was like, well, I am basically not paying myself right now from my side hustle, which is 95 Media at the time. I need to figure out how to support myself and not just reinvest all of the money back into the team and into our processes, which is what I had been doing for five years at that point, was barely taking anything out, like a couple hundred dollars a month I'd take out. And so I sat down and said, okay, well, what do I need to just live on? No, no actual salary, just kind of like live. And where do I still want our profit margins to be? And I basically laid out a financial plan. And that understanding of where I needed our finances to be made me feel really confident. And so once we started hitting that number in the fall and we hit it consistently for three months, that's when I, it was like November and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. We, I, th- I think we're good. And yeah, it was kind of that financials is one of those pieces of a business that you kind of have to have in place before you leave for most of us. So that was kind of the most important one to me. But I the day I put in my two weeks notice, I talked to my boss, just trying not to cry the entire time and immediately ran to the bathroom, called my mom sobbing. I was like, I just made the worst decision of my life. I don't know what I'm doing. I just quit my job in the middle of a pandemic. Like who the heck does that? Mm -hmm. So even though I, you know, set myself up, it did not feel any less scary to do it. Yeah. And I just, I really appreciate that honesty because I think that there is, you know, people think there's going to be this mythical answer again, that there's going to be the perfect moment. And so we wait, right? We wait for all those things to get lined up. But I love that notion of like, you've had at least some of these touch points, right? Of, you know, these are the, this is the amount of money that business needs to be producing in order for me to be able to provide for myself. I think that one's critical because there's a lot of people who go into business and end up with these hobby shops that have no capacity to support themselves in the long term. And Really, if they played out those numbers on paper, they would recognize, oh my gosh, there's no way this could ever actually provide for me in the way that I want or need. But I I also think there's an important piece of we're all a little naive when we do this. And if we had any idea the obstacles up ahead, we probably wouldn't. And I know personally from having built a similar business model that this is a model that takes a lot of guts, takes a lot of perseverance, and it takes a willingness to kind of be the first too, because it's a space that's always changing. And so I I was curious if you could share about what were some of the hurdles you encountered in the earlier stages of establishing the company and how did you navigate and overcome it? One of the biggest challenges, and I know I'm sure you've had this, anyone who builds a team where you're in an agency model, you have to have a team. That is the core of an agency. The team building and stepping into that leadership role has for sure been the hardest parts for our growth. So A, figuring out who are the right people to bring on your team. What do you look for in your hires? Making the wrong hires so that you start to learn those things along the way. That's an expensive lesson that you continue to learn. And I have continued to learn over the years. And I feel like we've gotten to a really incredible place with the team that we have now because of the mistakes that I've made along the way. And I 100% agree with you. If I knew what was coming, I probably wouldn't have done all the things that I've done. But that beautiful nativity in that is that you also create something 
that you didn't know was possible to create. And that's so cool, too. And so in the mistakes of hiring the wrong people and also not knowing how to be a leader, that was something I struggled with for a really long time is I Weirdly enough, I grew up always being told I was a leader, always wanting to take the lead on things and just living in that space. I thought it'd be easy. I thought Mm. that leading a team would be like stepping right into the role that I always was supposed to be in. And it was not. (laughs) And I messed up a lot. And there's, it's, it was something I didn't expect to happen, but developing that skill is something I don't think ever really stops because the second I think that I'm in a good place with my leadership, the company continues to grow and Mm -hmm. we add on a new department or we add on three new team members or we change our entire process in this way. And it's been something that I've continued to have to develop. So it's a challenge that I don't necessarily think will ever go away. But it was something that was really important to work through in order for us to get to the point where we are today and continue scaling moving forward. Yeah, I really appreciate that notion of leadership because it's definitely never an area where I feel like I've arrived. And like you said, just when just when you think you've got it, something new comes to the forefront. And what is even more challenging is building, you know, virtual teams. We were talking about that before we hit record of the difference when something goes down. If we were all in an office, yeah, I could just grab everybody and have a woman in a conference room, you know, versus leading virtually. I'm like, am I coming off with them empathetic enough on camera? Do they know like where I'm at? I've got to coordinate across all these different time zones. There's a lot of other things that come to play. And I know you lead a virtual team. So what strategies are one of the big things that you've kind of learned along that journey that you would pass on to other people who want to hire remotely? Because let's be honest, I think that the majority of people want to be employed at least in some part-time virtual capacity going forward, especially our generation is really craving that. But yeah, virtual leadership is definitely more challenging, I would say. It definitely is. And I have the same feeling all the time. I'm like, I just wish you could go into a room and sit down together and Two of the girls on my team were meeting this afternoon, actually, and they were like, can you just hop in this? And we just want to go through like a design together. And it was so fun because we don't do those impromptu meetings enough. Everything is so scheduled that when you do have the opportunity, it just kind of brings me back to corporate days or I'm like, that was actually the best part of being in an office, the part that I miss. But when it comes to virtual leadership, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that the one-on-one connection with each of the women on my team has been incredibly important. And I got to a point last year where I was really overwhelmed with the team management part of my role that I tried to offboard that. And I tried to bring someone in who could take that over for me. And while there were parts that were successful in that, it made me feel very disconnected. And so when I would sit down with the team, I really didn't know Like I I did know what was going on, but I didn't feel like I knew who they were anymore. And so once we ended up getting rid of that position on our team, I now feel so much happier with my team and, you know, just more proud of them because I know what's going on. And so that's something that I'm personally never going to do again. And it was a hard lesson to learn where I thought I was doing what was right for the company. But at the end of the day, it was actually not right for any of us. And everyone on the team is much happier and there's less conflict and there's less disappointment and everyone is scoring higher on their quarterly reviews that we do. And it just, it's actually worked out so much better to stay really connected with the team. So while one-on-one may not be a reality as any team grows to 10, 20, 30 people, building that in where you can, I've found to be one of the most rewarding and successful in terms of retention and happiness, really key parts of building the brand. I love that you offered that because I actually went through a similar season and and made that same mistake. And then, like you said, I felt really disconnected what was going on with the team or what was going on with the brand. And it might have made sense in that season because there was some strategic stuff that I needed to focus on. I felt like I couldn't spend time with this team in a way that I had wanted. But I definitely, it also made me realize like, where is my comfort zone and how big might be too big? For me yeah. as a business model, because I'm, I, if I have people that I'm working with, I want to add those touch points with them. But, and that maybe this is me projecting my own stuff onto the conversation. 
But one of the things that I oftentimes find that particularly women leaders struggle with is finding a line between wanting to be connected to your team, wanting them to know you as a person, and also having boundaries that allow you to still step back and be respected as the leader. And so I oftentimes coach and work with women founders that are like maybe trying too hard to want to be liked or want to be, they want to be best friends with their team. But it's not always possible, right? Because we have to make the tough calls. We have to, you know, acknowledge when underperformance is happening. So how have you worked in your leadership style to really find that balance between being connected to your team, but also recognizing as a leader, we can't always be likable? It's such a good point that you're making because that finding that very, very fine line is something I think every single leader struggles with, especially as you're saying women leaders. So when I was first building the team, I had no idea how to be in that authoritative position because all I wanted to do was like make sure I was friends. And I mean, I was 22. Like what else was I going to be doing? I was like, I want to be friends with the girls that are working with me. And it was unsuccessful because as you're saying, it's very difficult to then transition into, well, you know, you didn't meet this expectation. And so we... I'm so proud of my team and where we've gotten because we are landing at such a great place where it's very friendly, very collaborative. I know so much about their lives. I feel like they know a lot about my life. But at the same time, we are still in work mode. It's Mm -hmm. still very clear that this is your work environment. And it's really fun. Like everyone is so young on my team and everyone is friends with one another and they'll hop on the Zooms on their own. And I have no idea what they're talking about. I love that. I love that they're all friends. But at the same time, I think it comes down to the processes that we've put in place. And that's something that I learned from a mentor of mine is that he always said, when something goes wrong, we don't point at the person, we point at the process. And that's been a really big game changer for me because Instead of saying, well, I told you to do this and you didn't do it, I can say, well, our company expectation is that you do X, Y, and Z and you miss this deadline. Therefore, we're going to submit, we call it an inconsistency form just to kind of like document when something goes wrong. What is the solution you're bringing to the table for this? And then they get to tell me how they're going to solve the problem. And then we address it once again at our quarterly reviews too. And so Once I put those processes in place, it allowed me to disconnect a bit from being the person who has to have, I still have the hard conversations, but it's not that I told you to do this. It's that this was the expectation based on 95 media. And Mm -hmm. so once we kind of looked at it as a company, which was a huge shift over the past couple of years of being like, well, this is me and this is Emma and, you know, my brand versus 95 Media as its own entity, which I think is a shift that like every small business owner goes through. And it's a really hard one to disconnect when maybe you're still the face of the brand, which mm-hmm. is where I'm at. Um, That's been a really big help to just have really clear processes and expectations in place. Yeah, I love that suggestion. And I think that a lot of people who haven't done that level of work are like, well, what does that even mean? And, you know, that was one of the things that you and I, I think, connected a lot around when we were at that retreat is like the importance of putting in place these standard operating procedures so that you can point to this is how what needs to happen for the business to function. And it's not personal. It's, you know, these are the expectations in place. And at least in my own experience, the more you do that, the more you're able to weed people out that are not wanting to be holding accountable to those sort of things like standardized processes. And that's critical because in a creative environment, I love creatives. I I will never say a bad thing, but I will say it can be challenging sometimes to find people who have that balance of creativity and accountability. And so I'm curious for you, you know, as you've been building this team, like you said, you're incredibly proud of the team you've grown. Can you describe what's your process these days for developing those teams, vetting team members? What are the qualities you look for? And what are the key lessons, your goes and no-goes that you've learned along the way from all the hiring you've done? Well, it's funny you say that specific example around like creatives not wanting processes because I recently made a bad hire like er, a couple of months ago and that person actually quit because they said, you have too many processes. (laughs) 
I can't be creative enough. And I was like, okay, this isn't a great fit. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm glad this only lasted a couple of weeks because it's only going to get more process driven as we grow. So one, I think the driving factor I always look for in hiring, I we're still in a phase of business where I really like hiring people who are in the beginning of their careers, especially in the digital marketing space. It's important for me to grow a team of Gen Z because they just get it and they can keep me informed on what's going on. I still feel like I don't know what's going on half the time when it comes to like quick changes that are happening. And it's really great to have a Gen Z team. And so because I hire fairly young, like right out of college, sometimes they don't have other work experience. And so it's an interesting part of training where it's not just learning our processes, but it's also learning what does that look like to work in a company and how does team building look and what does collaboration look like and what are the expectations for how much time is being spent on certain tasks, which you might not need to say to someone who is a bit more senior. But when I do interviews, I would say that skill set is almost at the bottom of my qualifications. I really look for good team fits. Mm -hmm. I look for personality. How do you present yourself? Can I see you growing in leadership on our team? Can I see you leading a call with a client? And would I be proud for you to represent our company and feel as though I don't need to be there and you've 100% got it handled? And those things grow in your relationship with someone, but it's also I I can see it in day one. I can see, is this going to be a good fit personality-wise? And that comes first for me because I can teach anyone a skill. Like I can, and anyone on my team can support anyone we bring on with learning a skill. And we often do because I want someone, and this is also a benefit of bringing someone on earlier who's a bit more green. They just kind of learn the skill the way that we do it. And so it's less of a like curve because maybe someone else came from a different company where they did it a certain way and it takes an adjustment to learn how we do it, going back to those processes. So first comes personality and are you a good team fit? Then comes skill. And then comes, do you, does the work mesh all together? And we now, instead of like any business owner, I was very involved in onboarding for a good number of years. I would literally onboard them myself. And that led me to build out what we now call our team dashboard because I was like, I can't say this for the hundredth freaking time this year. (laughs) Like I cannot do it again. So I built out this team dashboard, which is essentially an online course that teaches anyone on our team, including our senior members, how do we do certain things? So it documents all of our processes. It documents templates that we use. It documents apps that we all use as a team. And here's the code to log in for our company account. Like all of the things are in one place, even down to like, how do you invoice me? What does your timesheet look like? All of that really like detailed granular stuff. It's all in this dashboard. And then we have a senior team member, like have, we have the new hire shadow a senior team member during their onboarding. So I'm very removed from the onboarding process now, which I think is really great because Not only is it, I think, more intimidating to onboard with like your boss Mm -hmm. and it's a lot better to onboard with a team member, but it's also encouraging those relationships to grow from day one, which is really important to me. Going back to building a virtual team, I really focus on allowing the team to grow in their interpersonal relationships with each other. Earlier this year, we had two of the girls on our team. One of them, they just connected and one of the girls flew out across the country to go meet the other one and they spent a weekend together. And it made me the happiest I've like ever been in business. I said, you guys became so close virtually that you met up for days on it. Like she stayed in her apartment. Like she didn't even get a hotel. She stayed with her. And that made me feel so happy that our team culture is facilitating relationships like that, that are going to outlast even potentially their role on this team, but they're going to get to move forward in life with that relationship. And that makes me just thrilled as a team leader. One of the most common questions I get asked by members of my mastermind community is what accounting software should I be using? 
I love this question because after years of working in the accounting and technology industries, I've got a lot of opinions. But for scaling service-based businesses, I simply don't think there is any platform better than FreshBooks. Whether you're a solopreneur just looking to send invoices and manage expenses, or you're a creative agency like mine with time tracking, proposals, and payroll, FreshBooks has all the tools and features you need to bill your clients, manage your books, pay your people, and ensure you have all the information you need at tax time. If you're looking for a better way to manage your accounting this year, learn more about FreshBooks and start your free trial at fearlessfoundry.com slash FreshBooks. I love that story. I think that's definitely a gold star in terms of building yeah. connection and collaboration. And I also love this idea of, okay, yes, there are these pieces of, of the puzzle that you're going to have to be really involved in in the early days. But how can you as the leader start to lay that groundwork to step out so that those relationships can form organically and also so people in your team can step up and own some of those leadership responsibilities? So I think that's fantastic. I want to take this in a slightly different direction. So we talk a lot about the inside of your business, but now I want to talk a little bit more about the external, which is that obviously to build a successful agency that can support a team, you have to have, you know, an understanding of the needs of your clients and clients to serve. So I'm curious to know how you went about determining your target audience for your agency, how maybe the verticals you've supported have changed over the time? And also, how have you evolved your services to meet the needs of the markets that you're looking Well, when we first started, I was very focused on serving the interior design, architecture, home space, because that was my network. And it wasn't, I think it was kind of just an organic niche. It just mm-hmm. kind of happened because that was where my network was. That's where I was just signing clients easily. I mean, it was not difficult too. And so like, thrilled about that. But we niched down in the interior design space. And I then realized that I didn't necessarily want to. And it was a result of the organic happenings. So over the past couple of years, we, I don't, I wouldn't say we've actually had a niche. Mm -hmm. And there were points where I was seeing trends and patterns. And obviously I look at all of the data and I'm like, okay, well, the majority of our audience are women-led brands. Let's make that our focus. But really, we haven't necessarily niched down because the reality is that we've seen that the way that we work and the strategies we put into place are successful across the board. And so we've had the opportunity to work in, I think it's over 25 different industries at this point. And they've all seen success because of the way that we look at their accounts and apply strategy and build out content for them. Today, I think we're we're kind of going back to niching a little bit, but it's really because I've actually just been asked that question a lot recently where I'm like, I think it seems to me as though everyone kind of wants, and not that this is what you were trying to do, but everyone kind of wants to put you in a box and say, Mm -hmm. okay, well, this is the industry you serve. And I've also had the opportunity to connect with a lot of other women, especially in our space where they're like, well, I'm trying to build a referral network and I want to know who you serve. And so that actually helps you get more business. And so in that sense, it's great to niche down. But as someone who likes to kind of change things up a bit, Mm -hmm. I, I struggle to niche for a long term. And so we don't necessarily have a niche, but over the years, that adaptation factor has been really important. And the just kind of going with what happens has been something that allowed us to scale significantly over the years. So for example, every year we look to add a new service and test it out and see, is this something we want to stick with long-term? So several years ago, we added on email marketing because that was something we were seeing come in. And that's been insanely successful. And we now have that as one of our core services on top of social media management. That social media is our bread and butter. That's what we've always done on the organic side and are so passionate about. But last year, we tried to be more strategic and add on paid media as well. And it just wasn't it for us. And Mm -hmm. so while we still do some paid media, it's not something I necessarily publicly talk about because it's not the type of clients we are trying to bring in. We usually add it if we have an existing client on the organic side. But this year, we 
added on podcast management, which has been really great. And it was an organic result of our own show and really just seeing the need in the market and knowing that we could fill that gap. And it's been really cool to see that service progress and change. And so while in the digital marketing space and social media specifically, you're always adapting and you're always changing the way you do things because the apps will force you to, whether you like it or not. I I do think it's very important to adapt with your services as well and say, how can I best serve my audience and bring the best of the best to them? And also know where you want your team to fall. Like for podcasting, we had to build out a whole new department for that. So figuring out how do you do that? It's building out all new processes. How do you stay profitable in that sense? And looking at all the different angles versus if we were just to add on, you know, another platform to the social media department, it looks very differently to adapt in those two different ways. So it's always thinking, how can I grow the business, serve more clients, serve more brands better? but also make sure that our business is at the forefront at the end of the day and it's advancing for us at the same time. I, I love that answer. And, you know, people who listen to this podcast know that I'm not a huge evangelist at the notion of niching. I think it works really well for some people, but I prefer to have just more of like, these are the values that, that the clients that I work with share. And, and I also have a no assholes policy. I think, if anything, the pandemic taught us that there is some risk in niching too far into a certain vertical because that industry could dry up overnight given supply chain issues or other unforeseen circumstances. And you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. And also, as creative as it, we like to approach different things. And I think that that can actually make us better marketers and better strategists to be you know, learning from the experiences in a variety of industries. But you brought up something that I think is really important, which is that these platforms are constantly changing or better yet, they're birthing new platforms like Threads is a recent example of this. And I think that oftentimes clients don't necessarily understand the amount of work that goes into managing a multitude of things. And so I might be speaking from experience over here, but you have these moments where clients are like, oh yeah, and can you do this? And can you do this? And can you do this? And so that can be challenging one, if they're what they're asking for is outside of your lane or or the things that your team is capable of, or two, if they're not willing to pay, you know, what it really costs, for example, to add on a new social media platform. So how do you find that balance of you know keeping people in scope or making sure they're informed that there's an additional cost if they want to try new things? And also how do you hold the line when clients suddenly want something that is not in your lane? For example, the paid media stuff. We had the same experience. We did it, you know, for a while. We dedicated a good year to it and it wasn't our thing. And we have some small scale projects for again, existing clients, but it's not something we advertise anymore because it's not our wheelhouse. So then we have to go refer to other people. So curious how you navigate that in a space that's always changing. Well, it really comes down to boundary setting when we think about it, because there is an immense amount of scope creep in our industry and everyone wants more and more and more. And it is challenging because I think the irony of being a business owner is that most of us at the end of the day are still kind of people pleasers. And a lot of what we do, we, especially in the service space, I think particularly, we all started out, and I know maybe I'm speaking for myself, I was the service provider when when we started the company. Like I was doing it all. And at the end of the day, I lived for my clients being happy, not only saying, hey, that looks so great. Thank you so much. Like that would make my week. But also, of course, their content performing well and their brand growing and them being successful from the partnership with us. So once those boundaries start coming into place, it can be really hard to know okay, yeah, of course I want to just do an extra thing for you this week. And then, oh, but it's another thing this week too. And then you need this other, and then you get tied into eight hours worth of extra deliverables that aren't actually in your contract. So for us, it's always a conversation. And I, my team and I talk all the time, like whenever there's a conversation brought up from a client to a team member, if I'm not present, which I think is great because that tells me I don't need to be a part of these conversations. 
it's always brought back to me. And we, I then have the conversation with my team and I say, okay, well, how long do we think this will take? Is this a one-time thing or do we need to make this an additional paid service that we offer? So the way I always like to approach it is something along the lines of, we'd love to do this for you, 100% doable, happy to do X, Y, and Z to start out, happy to make this extra post this week, even though we only include four posts a week, happy to add this fifth one in this week. Not a problem. Want you to be happy. However, moving forward, if you'd like to do this, this is what it would cost. Would you like me to send over an invoice for that work? Would you like me to update our contract? Let me know how you'd like to proceed. And typically, it's all fine. And that's good and fine. And most of the time, I would say the answer is, thanks so much. Let me think about it. I don't want to pay extra for this right now. And that's cool, too. I don't take any offense to that because most of the time, we're all just trying to figure out how much can we get away with without paying more. And so when you just kind of realize, oh, okay, I can't. This isn't the person I can just keep pushing because the reality is a lot of service providers do a lot that they're unpaid for. And so that's the baseline expectation for a lot of brands and clients. But that's seemed to work very well for us so far. And at the end of the day, I always want to provide more deliverables. And the reality is we most of us do provide more than the contract says to begin with. And so then when a client comes back and they're like, well, why couldn't you just do this extra thing? You know, walking them through, well, actually, that extra thing that you think only takes five minutes actually all of these different processes go into place and it's really going to take three hours and our agency hourly rate is this. So if you looked at it like that, you're actually paying a lot more for us to do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, at the end of the day, your client's happiness is always priority, but profitability as your as a company has to be number one. And that always has to be at the forefront as well. I, I really, really appreciate that answer. And especially the way you gave us some mock language as to how to have those kinds of conversations, because I think that's where things get tricky. Things get tr- tricky because our acts of service take people. It's why we run these kinds of businesses. And then maybe if we're conditioned as email, we might have a little people pleaser tendencies in there. And so it feels big and scary. But what I loved is, you know, it can be just that simple as saying, yes, I would love to do that for you. And here's what it'll cost. And then, yeah. oh, okay, one, I'm acknowledging there's a value associated with this. And Let's be honest, that person knows it because they don't want to do it or they don't have the capacity or ability to do it. And so they're asking for me to help. And yeah, my time, my energy or my team's time and energy is worth something. So here's what it's worth. Is that worth it to you? And then you're just putting it back in the client's arena. It doesn't have to be about you. Like you said, it doesn't, you know, you're you're fine. You're not affected if somebody says, oh, no, I'm not actually interested in increasing my skills. But what it does is it, like you said, with that that really core boundary in place. So I think that piece is really important. Yeah. The boundary setting is a hard lesson to learn, a very expensive lesson to learn, but an important one at the end of the day. Because if you don't know how and when to implement those boundaries, it all gets really messy. Yeah. Yeah. We've all... We've all learned this lesson. <laughs> that's the thing that's coming to mind. Well, one of the other things that I really respect and admire about how you've grown your business is through some really intentional partnerships and strategic alliances. You know, we're a part of a great Slack channel for women agency owners, and we see a lot of business pass and forth back to through that community. But I'm curious to know how have establishing those partnerships really enhanced your agency's offerings? And what advice would you give to other founders in terms of how to go about vetting and building partnerships into their business model? There's kind of two different types of partnerships that we've developed over the years. One is more formal and you have an agreement and you set a referral rate, which I love doing. I think it's whenever you can make a partnership that's mutually beneficial for both of you, it's a win-win scenario. So it's almost a no-brainer. So we have some formal partnerships set up where send a client here back and forth. This is our referral rate. We even have a referral program set up for our existing clients. We want to give you a discount if you're going to send another client our way. That to me is the best money I'll ever spend is essentially a thank you gift. I love gifting. And when I can just send money to someone like, heck yeah, I want to do that. So there's the formal partnerships. And then there's more of the loose partnerships where hey, I know that you do X, Y, and Z. That's out of my wheelhouse. I want to send someone to you. 
when, as you said earlier, a client says, hey, can you add this onto our scope? And it's not something you necessarily want or enjoy doing. Having people that do something better than you is really, really valuable. And building those relationships are incredibly important. So I look at it as just like general networking. And that's something that for me, it's funny because starting full-time in this business, which is essentially like basically birth number two of 95 Media in 2020, when there was no in-person networking and it was still the shift of, well, how the heck do we get in-person networking onto online? Like, I didn't know any online groups. I was a part of one. Let me say there was one group that I was in where I was, was still building relationships, but it was still very new to me to build those relationships in the online space and be really intentional about it. And so, of course, over the past couple of years, so many more communities have popped up and community building is incredibly valuable (laughs) and almost necessary to growing a business today. And so I would recommend that wherever you can find community and other people doing what you do to tap into that. Because there's this notion that, well, I don't want to connect with people who do exactly what I do because that's my competition. And at the end of the day, oftentimes I have found that those connections are some of the most valuable and profitable for us as a company. Because if I don't do something well in this arena, you maybe do. Or if you don't, then this other person I know does. And this Slack group that you mentioned that we're both in has been incredible to not only build those relationships, but to send business back and forth between a few of the other women in there and myself. And it's really shown me that I want to be a part of more of those. But I'm also very intentional with in-person networking events as well. So I moved to I moved across the country two years ago. I, mo- I live in Dallas now. And I knew absolutely no one here except my sister who moved down at the same time as I did. And I really, I wasn't intentional the first year I was here in really meeting a lot of people in Dallas because I was so unsure if I was going to stay here. I didn't know if it was even worth it to build connections. So after my one year, I was sat here and I said, well, I know literally no one here. I should probably start meeting people. And so this past year, which has been the second year I've been here, I have gone to so many networking events and just community meetups. And it has been such a nice breath of fresh air to meet other people who I've met other agency owners here in Dallas, which have been incredible connections. But I've also met people in other spaces who also send us referrals because they don't do what we do at all. And so we're the first one that comes to mind for them and vice versa. So networking and building connections, especially as a small business owner, Oftentimes it feels like a lot of pressure to do that. Like I feel a lot of pressure to be the one to go out and do it. But at the same time, as an extroverted person, I also really, really enjoy it and it lights me up. But even if it didn't, it would be something that I make myself do because it really can just be such a game changer for you in bringing in new business and also being able to support other small business owners in giving them referrals to grow their brand too. Yeah, I love that. And I love that comment that you made about this notion of connecting with your quote unquote competition, because I think that especially when you're earlier on in the journey, we think we've got to be everything to everyone. And how could I possibly spend time with somebody else who owns an agency? Nevertheless, there's thousands and thousands of us in these countries and we all do different things and we're all better at at certain things than others. And we have all different levels of experience. And What I've found is so beautiful is the more that I have built those connections, the more that I can lean into the work that I love and really own my identity more as a brand strategist and a coach and feel like I have these people who can be collaborators or they can be referral partners. And I don't have to say that I'm really good at something that I'm not. And I also get to, like you said, support and elevate them in their area of expertise and feel like I've got like these, you know, powerhouse people that I can bring into projects should I need their areas, or if they're better suited to just send the client their way, do that as well. You hinted at this this role, especially being an entrepreneur, but then being the leader of a team, especially if you have good boundaries between, you know, your role as the boss and, and the rest of the team. It's amazing, but it can also be super isolating at times. And so I I would love to hear from you. But in addition to that networking, 
what do you do and where do you go to get feedback, to get motivation and to get support as a female founder? You mentioned earlier, like some things like mentors, but what are, what is your support system look like for you as an entrepreneur? It's a great question. <laughs> I feel like it's the question when you're on a date and someone's like, well, what do you do for fun? And I'm like, I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> my work is my fun. So, yeah. But no, I think that in terms of a support system, I've just found it really valuable to connect with other people like yourself who have similar experiences. So I would say a lot of the friends that I've made here in Dallas are fellow business owners. And while that's still technically like, of course, we're talking about business, it's more fun for me because there's so much more we can relate on. And it sometimes it's difficult to relate to people your age who haven't necessarily gone through what you've gone through <laughs> and built the company. I mean, it was a lot harder when I was younger and I was building it. I mean, I'm only 28 now, but it's still difficult to find people in the same age range where your basically entire life is building a brand bigger than yourself. And while it's incredibly rewarding, it's the most stressful thing you'll ever do. And it's hard to relate if you haven't gone through that. So I find that a lot of my support system are fellow business owners who, you know, maybe we'll grab coffee and we'll have a co-working session on a Friday afternoon. And that just lights me up. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about what are you going through? What am I going through? Let's find solutions for each other. But also local communities and finding your place in small groups where you are has been really rewarding for me. But I also love going to conferences and meeting people that way. Obviously, we met at a retreat, which is like a mini conference. But this year, I've really tried to go to a good number of new conferences where you can really just meet a plethora of new people. And I try and go to conferences that aren't about marketing so that I can meet people in other spaces. And we can, going back to that referral, like we can, you know, network and see how we can support each other. But I've met really wonderful connections in that way. One of the people that I talk to all of the time as a fellow business owner, I met at a conference and we chat constantly because it's just like we have so much in common, even though we're in totally different spaces, we found such common ground and a friendship in that. So I think a lot of my support system outside, of course, like very close family and friends, it oftentimes falls into the entrepreneurship realm. And I just find it to be a little easier to connect on things outside of, yeah, I want to shut off work and I want to go grab a glass of wine with you, but we're probably going to end up talking about business. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That makes me feel so much better because I was like doing some mental math. They see you were talking. I was like, do I have any friends who are not entrepreneurs? And I'm like, well, maybe, but truly what that provides, you know, I had a big moment in my business just today that felt like a scary milestone. And to have two or three really close people that, you know, we don't even live in the same city, but I know that there are, you know, they know how challenging some of these moments are to share those with them and get immediate texts back of, I'm proud of you, you're kicking ass. There's just a different level of getting it. And that's why I work so hard to even create community spaces for introverts. It's because I think we need that so desperately. And it's, we often can feel isolated and we can often feel alone and we can often stand in our own way because we don't have other people being like, oh yeah, I've totally had that happen. It sucks. You'll get through it kind of thing. I curiosity of the conferences you've attended so far this year. Was there like one where you're like, you gotta go to this one? Or, or was there one that stood out for any particular reason? Or maybe there was a couple you really liked? I've been to South by Southwest for two years now, now that I've been in Texas and found that out. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, the rest of the world knew what South by was and I didn't. Okay, cool. And that's a really cool one because there's just something for everyone there. And it's exhausting because there's so much, but it's really cool because there's different tracks for different industries. And so you do get to meet people in a really wide range of spaces. And it's just like a fun vibe at South by I've found where some conferences feel very stiff and too structured in their layout. And South by does a really great job at keeping it fun. I don't go for the like actual fun parts, which are like the music and the film. I leave before those. So I'm really only there for the business part, the business week. And even still, it's just like a very fun conference. I always walk away feeling like I learned so much and I'm bursting to tell everyone I know all the new information I found. And they just bring really cool industry leaders to speak at that one. So that's been one that I've really enjoyed the past couple of years. Yeah, you're putting that one back away, but it was to like, oh, actually, I've been good this year, I think. So that's totally one that's been on my list for a long time. So if I go, I'll, I'll have to hit you up and we can go to some sessions. Too. 
Yes, for sure. (laughs) Okay, so obviously we could fill more than an hour with conversation, but there's one last quick thing I wanted to to leave into our discussion today, which is that you mentioned earlier you launched a podcast and then launched a, a service to support other business owners to do the same. And clearly I'm passionate about podcasting, but I'm, I wanted to hear why do you love podcasting and why do you believe it's a powerful way to build brand recognition in a way that most people maybe aren't thinking about right now for their businesses? It's incredible to watch the, the growth of podcasting over the past five, eight years, because I remember listening to podcasts when I was in corporate. I would listen to them on the train and literally no one else in my life knew what a podcast was and everyone was like, you're you're not watching Netflix on the train to work. What are you doing? And I just loved them. I, it was basically my education on marketing is how, what podcasting was for me back then. And it's been really cool to watch podcasting progress and news just from that educational space into storytelling, into another platform for content creators who blew up on TikTok or have other platforms that are Twitch that grow like crazy and now they're podcasting as well. And it, really provides you with a platform to create long-term content that you can't do anywhere else. And that's the reality of it. And that's really why I started our show, Stop Probably Start Feeling, because I was feeling really boxed in to the short-form content that we were creating on other platforms. And I just felt like I had so much more to say and I wanted to just kind of go off on topic. And so it's been a really amazing outlet for us as a company. It's also grown our brand in ways that I totally didn't think it would or plan for it to. But if, you know, if you're listening and you're like wondering if podcasting is about for you, I think that it's definitely something to explore because it has the potential to open up doors for you that you don't even know exist. One thing I found that bringing on guests the way that we're doing today, that was a game changer for us. We didn't do it for the first couple of months. And then once we did, we watched our views go up, our downloads go up, our listenership increased. And that's when we really started bringing in new leads because although the guest is tapping into your audience by them being on your show, you also get exposure to their audience when they share it through their platforms. And so there's this beautiful cycle of brand awareness that happens when you bring on guests and monetization opportunities and all of the good stuff. But podcasting is really cool and it's really exciting. Actually, next week I'm going to a podcast conference just to learn all the things that are happening today because it's one of those spaces like social media that just is developing and changing so quickly and it's really exciting to watch. I could not agree more. I've been doing this for six years now and it, it, it is just such an amazing way to build connection and relationship as well. And I think that's a huge extension of your brand like we talked about before is like building those partnerships. And so I'm really glad that we got to use this podcast as an outlet to, to sit down and spend some time together and get to know you even better than I already did before. And then, Me like too. you said, share your expertise with our audience. So thank you so much, Emma, for being on the show. I wanted to just ask before we wrap, what is the best ways for people to find and connect with you? Obviously, you're on social media. So go ahead and share this note. And then if there's anything exciting you've got coming up that you want to talk about, feel free to do so as well. Yeah, for sure. So our website is 95media.co, all spelled out, not the numbers. <laughs> our Instagram is where I'm most active. It's 90.5.media, constantly on Instagram. We also have our podcast, Stop Scrolling, Start Scaling, like I said, where we have lots of info over there. And, you know, we, I'm so grateful to be on the show and to know you and work with you and to just continue to build our relationship. But I think if you're looking for podcast management, that's something we're really growing at our company right now. And it's, you know, there's info on our site, on our Instagram, all of the good things. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. Thank you, Emma. I'm so glad we got to spend time together. All right, y'all, there is my conversation with Emma. I think that you will be equally as inspired as I was ending this episode. You know, it is just so great sometimes to get down to sit down and kind of quote unquote talk shop with somebody who has a similar business model to yours. But I also think there's these universal truths that come out of those of us who are scaling service based businesses. And one of the things that I think is so important that came out of this conversation is the importance of partnership and the importance of community and the importance of learning from others. I love towards the end as Emma's, you know, talking about going to all these conferences and moving to a new city and 
making new relationships and making that a priority as a way that she's showing up and growing what she's doing at 95 Media. So as always, I will put all of Emma's details in the show notes. I highly recommend you follow her, especially if you're another creative. She does this great roundup of memes that are very social media manager related. She does them about once a week or so, and they always crack me up. But follow her on social media. Check out her podcast. She offers a lot of great marketing advice on that show. And stay connected to her and stay connected to this show as well. If there's someone you know who you think would love and be inspired by this episode, please pass it on. And if you get a moment, of course, rate, subscribe, and review. Those are all things that help us extend the reach of the show as well. All right, y'all. Until then, you've been listening to the Finding Fearless podcast with me, your host, Madeline Reeves. Thank you so much for being a part of our community. You've just listened to another episode of the Finding Fearless podcast. Finding Fearless is available on all streaming platforms and is released every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. You can also learn more about how to become a sponsor of the show and about our company, Fearless Foundry, by visiting fearlessfoundry.com slash findingfearless. If you have a minute, also make sure to connect with us on social media platforms by looking for us under our handle at Fearless Foundry. This episode of Finding Fearless was produced and edited by Fina Valenzuela, and all music is owned by Premium Beats. This has been a Fearless Foundry production. All audio is recorded and owned by Fearless Foundry. I'm your host, Madeline Reeves, and I'll be back to chat with you all in two weeks.